Welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast with your charismatic host and prominent safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Be entertained and informed as the Safety Doc discusses both best and bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. The truth will keep you safe. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. Hi, everybody. This is David, and welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast. Glad to be back. Was on vacation up in Superior and Duluth. Um, one of the days up there was 55 degrees for a high with 44 degrees wind chill. A brisk wind blowing in off of Lake Superior, which had a surface temperature of 39 degrees. So, yes, yes, much different um, and looking to be in the 80s here tomorrow. So, um, today we are going to talk, it's going to be a little bit more intellectual again in our conversation, but you know what? You are an audience that appreciates um, new information, information that you can go out and, and you can share uh, with others and information that is going to hone your safety skills and your awareness. So uh, we're going to talk about what Sophie's choice, now what it means to make a Sophie's choice, how Artificial intelligence will change rescues. And we're also going to look at some 9-11 or September 11, 2001 research design. Um, as, as you know, I'm working on a book, which is due, I think, in six weeks to my publishing house, um, on the rescue 500,000 people from lower Manhattan on September 11th, uh, 2001. And I have, you know, kind of a different, um, a, a different hinge for my, my rationale, uh, of the effectiveness of that versus what's been more mainstream research. And I want to point out, I, I think some of the more travel, um, avenues and research and why people go down those, those, those avenues versus maybe the approach that I've taken. So, um, a few anecdotes. Okay. One is I do have a boom right now and a shock mount so completely new the microphone's up a little bit closer to me instead of having to sit on literally 15 notepads um it is in front of me right now and i can adjust it which is really nice and move it off to the side and store it um a thank you to hector solis from typical daddy podcast for helping me configure the different components I needed to make this possible. And Typical um, Daddy has uh, a new season coming up um, and also uh, a new special awareness um, branch off of their uh, podcasting. So look for Typical Daddy to be coming out with some tremendous, um, tremendous, uh, insightful, resourceful podcasts uh, very soon. So... We are in the midst of a bathroom remodel, actually two bathrooms right now in our house, which are the only two bathrooms in our house. Uh, they're being done in succession, though, because obviously to renovate both bathrooms at the same time creates some logistical issues. Um, and when we left for vacation, the, the I guess, builders, uh, it, we've worked with the same, with the same crew uh, since we've lived in this house for 15 years. They put a roof on, windows and other things, and, and have done just exceptional work. But it literally took them, uh, they brought in a dumpster and in two hours to completely gut the existing bathroom, like gut to the studs, drywall gone, subfloor gone. I mean, just everything. Um, and, and then, uh, 
you know, to move on from there. So we returned and, and they currently have the floor down. Uh, we picked out a, a porcelain, uh, tile that we're going to be using for the floor shower. And then actually, actually it's going to be on a couple of walls. Um, and then they, they put a, uh, four foot piece of, of, um, drywall up to block the entrance to the, to the bathroom because you can't go in for 24 hours as the tiles set. And it was, it was for us, you know, that, that we wouldn't accidentally go in, but we also have two cats and one cat is about 30 pounds. So <laughs> they said, actually that cat walking in that room, um, and he's very curious could shift uh, the placement of some of those tiles. So it's completely blocked off from about, um, you know, to about four feet and you can still look in if, if you need to. So, um, exciting time, um, having some updates done on the house. Uh, we've, we've had it updated much after 15 years. It, it was funny because when we moved here, um, and looked around the, the town, I remember we drove past this house and we thought there's, there's no way we're going to <laughs> set up a, a, a time to, to go through that house. You know, um, there was a large TV antenna that was rusting, and it had the typical rust marks that went down the um, uh, the shingles, and and it had a broken uh, backboard, and 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 just you know overgrown. Um, there was a bush in the front that was literally as high as the first story of the house. And um, anyway, though, it, it's really a sound house. It really was really built well. It's in a terrific neighborhood. We're only a couple blocks from all of the schools, and. You know, the high school is new and, and everything. So it's, it's really a great location, good neighbors. Um, so when we bought the house, we had a lot of work to do on renovating it and updating it. And this was kind of the last step uh, that we never had, had gotten to were the two bathrooms. We did just a little bit, but just to totally gut them out and to, to rebuild them and add more space um, and, and go with a different design, too, in, in the main bathroom, kind of lay things out in a different style, uh, meaning they had a moose in the plumbing and, and ducting and things like that. But um, with my daughters, uh, definitely we needed the storage, you know, too. So we went with um, a floor to ceiling storage unit. So exciting, you know, it's exciting when you're you're 45 for stuff like that. Probably when you're 25, it's not that exciting, but uh, but it is exciting, you know, right now to, to have that develop. So, um and dun, 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 dun. on our way up to Superior, we go through a community of Minong, Wisconsin. You might know it better for being the home of Jack Link's Beef Jerky. So I think they had a commercial in the Super Bowl a few years ago. Um, they have a big Sasquatch. Um, that's kind of their thing. Um, anyway, they have the beef jerky outlet. So they take all the beef jerky. Um, I, I don't know what the story is behind it, you know, the stuff that didn't make the, the cut or, um, excess and whatever. Uh, and they bag it up and, and, you know, vacuum seal it and you can buy, I mean, just super cheap at this, this outlet store in town, super cheap. Um, it's part of the grocery store and they have the section where, yeah, they just, they just bring the stuff in. So I loaded up on six pounds of, of jerky, um, at a fraction of the price that I pay for it. And I didn't realize, I never knew this, okay? So I'm reading the bag of jerky, and it says, refrigerate after open, after opening. And I'm like, I've had beef jerky, like, literally that I've opened and have probably eaten, like, a year later. <laughs> like, because I take it when I bike, you know? It's it's something I pack, and I'm like, ooh, I didn't know about this, this, this steadfast rule that you have three days to eat, bur- you know, beef jerky. So you got six pounds of jerky that, 
I'm going to have to manage pretty well here. Um, cause again, it is something I take out with me biking, but yeah, yeah. I was like, I'm going to defy that, that rule. Um, you know, refrigerate beef jerky after nope, never done it. So, um, yeah. Uh, Hey, the safety dog podcast is now on Stitcher, so You can find the show on Stitcher. I want to give a thank you to the 405 Media, John Grant and the 405 Media. This show airs daily at 2 p.m. You can go to the405media.com, listen to this show, and also the League of Extraordinary Podcasters, uh, basically a podcast radio station. Check it out, the405media.com. Also, thanks to ISS 24-7, which you can see in the background if you're watching on YouTube, um, ISS 24-7, um, keeping large venues safe, including the National Football League, the NCAA shopping malls, and other population-dense areas. Uh, they use um, an app-based incident management system. It's the best in the world, um, ISS 24-7. Sprigio, S-P-R-I-G-E-O, Sprigio.com, the nation's leader for school reporting of bullying, threats, um, and harassment. So Sprigio, Sprigio.com. Also, Auphonic, A-U-P-H-O-N-I-C. Auphonic is a supporter of the show. Auphonic leveling, you can purchase. Very reasonable. I think it's $89. Um, you can put your podcast into it, and it will bring it up to industry standards for radio and for podcasting. Basically, the best interface I've ever seen in my life. You take your recorded file, your audio file. You drag it, put it into the box um, in in the user interface, and you press process. Does its magic and comes out and gives you a little bit of a of a data report of, of saying what it did, and boom, you have an excellent recording, especially when you have multiple channels. Like if I'm interviewing somebody, um, and I do now have the capability to um, do the Skype phone interviews where I can call somebody off of Skype. So I no longer have to set up my cell phone hooked into an external speaker, hooked into you know all this other stuff which just didn't give me very good quality before. So that is that has increased significantly. Um, it will be very important for some of the guests that we have coming up. Um, some of the the artwork and or, or the sponsor logos, I guess artwork in the background, will be changing uh, very soon and, uh, of course, being updated. Um, also, I want to give a thank, out, a thank you out to Larry Roberts of the Readily Random um, podcast, readilyrandom.com. Uh, listen to his captivating interviews. I've, I've listened to all of them. Um, he recently had, uh, Sean Fuller on who talked about, um, what, it, what it's like to overcome drug addiction and, and the stories that Sean would share that, you know, anything that in his possession was for sale, you know, so if, if he had his bicycle or a couple bikes, they would be sold for drugs or any, or, and, and the culture, you know, of where he worked of just everybody using drugs. And Sean has, you know, had a podcast of over a hundred episodes, very intellectual, um, very engaging stories. But I think what I took away from that, I listened to it a few times is, you know, it can happen to anyone and it's hard to break the cycle and, and, um, really, uh, motivating and, and kind of hard story, I think, for Sean to tell. Um, although, you know, Larry is, is a phenomenal, um, interviewer and, and, uh, you know, worked with, worked with, you know, Sean and, and, and it's upbeat and informative. 
Uh, but I think it gives you an insight into the world of somebody who has a severe addiction and working through that addiction and coming out the other side and, 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 and working hard to not have a relapse. So, um, and this week, um, with his guest, this is where you can bring up the art of the internet dun, 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 and sing cool songs to you. Joe Navarro, Joe Navarro, um, a retired, um, agent for the FBI, um, you know, talked about, uh, very astute, uh, monitoring of people's behaviors and, and using that to, uh, his advantage and then sharing, um, tips that everybody could use, um, to help stay safe. And, and that was, was incredible. The stories that, that, um, that were shared during that interview. So again, readilyrandom.com. Larry Roberts, a true professional, and you're going to get a show there that is very tightly produced, maybe about 40 minutes in, in length, and and just these fascinating human interest stories. I was a guest on the show. I was, I was very fortunate to be uh, brought in as a guest by Sean a few episodes ago. Um, but yeah, readily, or, or, or not, Sean didn't bring me in as, episode, uh, as a guest, Larry did, but um, readilyrandom.com. Um, also, check out the book Reconnaissance Man by Aaron Clary. I wrote a review on Amazon, posted it today. Aaron was a guest on my show uh, about a month ago. Uh, we talked about agency and purpose related to Reconnaissance Man and the importance if you're young and unencumbered, let's say ages, you know, 17 to 25, to get out, experience the country, identify places um, that you could say, hey, I might live here. You know, this could be a place for me, place you might want to go to school, you know, might want to um, pursue employment. You know, again, like if you're really into hiking and warm weather and things like that, you know, maybe Minnesota isn't going to be the place for you. Um, so, you know, he does a, uh, I think, a wonderful job in that in that book, identifying why to do reconnaissance, Moving then into kind of the mechanics of reconnaissance, such as even if you have to sleep in your car. And not that, you know, if, if you don't do that, that's fine. But I think he takes away the barrier of like, you know, there's, there's, you, you can find a way to do it. And, and, and then he brings it, um, of where to start. I mean, if you're a novice to reconnaissance. And Aaron does a nice job too of, of, of pointing out that reconnaissance is his first trip through. You're kind of getting the the lay of the land, and then you're going to go back into areas that are of interest to you and investigate those more for like post secondary opportunities, um, what the economy is is like, you know, housing costs, cultural, you know, attributes, things like that. And he talks about his own experiences, but he doesn't give you an agenda to follow, which which is great because. You need to set your own agenda and your own interest. It's not one of these books that lays everything out and it's like, just follow this. Um, he gets you to think about things and, and I appreciate it. I, I, I downloaded it audible.com, listened to it several times. It was narrated by Jim Fear, uh, who did a, a tremendous job with the, with the near, with the narration. Um, so again, Reconnaissance Man by, by Aaron Clary. You can find it on Amazon. It's available in, in many formats. Um, Please visit letusgetnerdy.com. Letusgetnerdy.com. See what Elijah and his friends are up to. They're always uh, sharing fascinating 
but relatively obscure, you know, history and science stories. Uh, he was, we did a co-show, so he, he is from Canada. We did a co-show last week. It was, it was longer, longest show I've ever done. We're going to do a follow-up, um, maybe, you know, in a month or so, uh, kind of narrow it in a little bit. But, um, one of the things I, I, I learned during that show, I mean, I learned many things, but like, um, I didn't know that Chicago, because it was at sea level, couldn't have a regular sewer system. So they needed to go kind of block to block and, and raise the buildings, you know, like a dozen feet or so, so they could actually put in this, this sewer system. But, you know, it might not sound like anything significant until you go back to when that actually happened and the fact that that allowed Chicago then to grow as a city and had something like that not happen, it probably would have never developed um, in, into what it is today. So, um, and dun, 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 dun. we talked a lot about, you know, artificial intelligence and singularity and what happens to religion, you know, if people can live forever, we're getting closer to that folks, you know, we're getting closer. What happens if people can live uh, forever uh, and you don't have to be concerned for physical death because, you know, you could be cloned or uh, you could just have a chip built into you that would, that would constantly up upload, you know, the um, bioelectrical um, impulses in your brain. So it would always have a momentary scan of what you were thinking, all that. So if something did happen to you, a tree falls on you and kills you, the, that database could be uh, accessed and your DNA and, and basically you could be put into another body and just continue. So, well, you know, what does that mean? What does it mean for religion? Just what does it mean? Would you want that to happen? I mean, if you could live for a thousand years or indefinitely, would you want that? And Elijah and I had different positions on that. Um, you know, I said, I said, no, I think he was more in the camp of, of yes for that. And he pointed out something I didn't think about much. And I've thought about it much since our, our show. And he said, you know, you, you really have like 85 years of, of life. And, um, and it's short. Think about it. 85 years. You're trying to, to, you know, get established, you know, get up the corporate ladder, get a family, get some time for yourself. And then, you know, um, toward the end of life, you know, your, your, your body isn't as, as, um, isn't functioning as well as when it was, when it was younger and, and so forth. So, I mean, you do, you, you do this, that 85 years is kind of a small window. So he said, you know, what if you expand it out to two, 300 years? I mean, you can, you can do a lot more things. You're not going to be as pressed to try to, to, to compress all these things in. And I'm thinking of that thinking, yeah, I mean, that's, that's absolutely true because I mean, if we look at the typical, for example, American lifestyle, I went back and I looked in, in, in 1800 in the United States, the average lifespan, 40 years. Okay. In 1800. So, you know, we've more than doubled that, you know, right now and, and brings up some, some real challenging ethical questions. So we're going to talk about, um, specifically artificial intelligence and rescues. Um, because what, what's happening with artificial intelligence and the algorithms being built in would be, you know, like, um, probabilities. So if you had, you know, um, this situation versus this situation empirically, you know, whatever data was, was gathered and put into this AI system, it would be able to uh, give you probabilities of saying, this is, this is your best option. This is your second best, third best option from a very empirical standpoint, but then it removes emotion. And for example, there was a scene in iRobot with Will Smith at, at early on. I think he plunged into, 
um, a body of water with his car and it was him and, and there was, um, so he, you know, he's an adult and there was a child and this robot went in the water to rescue, um, to conduct a rescue and, and did some scan and identified that, that Will Smith as an adult was a more probable rescue for, than, than this girl. And he's yelling, no, save her, you know, pointing to her, save her. And they save him instead. And, and she, and, and she isn't saved. So it's those types of things that, that come into play. So artificial intelligence is not consciousness. You know, we kind of mix those two up and, and it's, it's built on algorithms and, and we're still quite a ways off. I mean, we're going to have AI be a part of rescue. There's no doubt about that. Um, but it, it, it is, I think it's where we need to look to the future versus kind of looking to the past and, and rescue because um, all of the studies I've seen, I don't see studies that look to the future of saying, what might rescues look like once AI is is involved or more robotics or things like that. So today's show, though, dun, 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 dun. All right. We are going to talk about Sophie's Choice, Hodson's, um, or Hobson, excuse me, Hobson's Choice, how artificial um, intelligence is and will change rescues, and also spend time analyzing a safety response article from the Journal of Contingencies and Crisis Management. So there's sound methodology there, impeccable experts, but I think it's a good example of how research in this vein becomes patterned and how ultimately we experience struggles to offer fresh recommendations. So let us begin. Oh, it is Sophie's Choice. Okay. Um, this, I wasn't familiar with this. This is new to me. Um, Sophie's Choice is the title of a 1979 novel by William uh, Sterun. It's about a Polish woman in a Nazi concentration camp who is forced to decide which of her two children, um, it was, I believe, a 10-year-old boy or a 7-year-old girl, will live and which will die. And Meryl Streep um, gained an Oscar for her starring role in the 1982 film version of this. So basically, in that scenario, Sophie's Choice, in that scenario, the the German, uh, the Nazi concentration ga- uh, camp guard said um, to, to the mother, you know, that you have to pick which one of your children will will die, basically. And if you don't pick, then they will both die. So you have to pick one, and she picks she picks the boy. Um, now, there isn't ever a rationale, you know, that, that – that's giving given for this, you know, and and of course it is a a, a heart wrenching decision. Um, you know, I and I've read subsequent articles saying, well, of course, you know, the the boy would be older, would be you know more likely to participate in in work camp efforts and things like that. But um, yeah, who who knows? But um, so Sophie's choice now is the phrase the phrase has become shorthand for a terrible choice between two difficult options. And we can see this in state budgets, okay? When lawmakers state that all cuts are going they'll inflict pain no matter what we do. Every cut is going to inflict pain. Our job is to inflict as little pain as possible. That's a Sophie's choice. So if we choose this, you know, somebody is going to suffer. Um and if we choose this other option, somebody is going to suffer. And if we do nothing, both both groups are going to suffer. So that is a Sophie's choice. So a Sophie's choice is used in reference to a difficult situation in which a person must choose between two 
equally deserving alternatives. So do we fund the roads or do we fund education? Um, or, you know, in the case of, of the novel, you know, d- do I choose for my daughter to live or do I choose for my, my son to live? Um, so this deals with moral dilemmas which play into safety situations. You know, we haven't talked about that uh, as much in the Safety Doc uh, podcast and also the ethics that come into play with safety. So we're going to get into that today. Um, and so the following is an example of a moral dilemma adapted from moral reasoning by Victor Gracian. Okay. I'm going to read this and, and then we're going to talk about it. The overcrowded lifeboat. In 1842, a ship struck an iceberg and more than 30 survivors were crowded into a lifeboat intended to hold Seven. As the storm threatened, it became obvious the lifeboat would have to be lightened if anyone were to survive. The captain reasoned that the right thing to do in this situation was to force some individuals to go over the side and drown. Such an action, he reasoned, was not unjust to those thrown overboard, for they would have drowned anyway. If he did nothing, however, he would be responsible for the deaths of those whom he could have saved. Some people opposed the captain's decision. They claimed that if nothing were done and everyone died as a result, no one would be responsible for these deaths. On the other hand, if the captain attempted to save some, he could do so only by killing others, and their deaths would be his responsibility. This would be worse than doing nothing and letting all die. The captain rejected this reasoning. Since the only possibility for rescue required great efforts of rowing, the captain decided that the weakest would have to be sacrificed. In this situation, it would be absurd, he thought, to decide by drawing lots who should be thrown overboard. As it turned out, after days of hard rowing, the survivors were rescued and the captain was tried for his action. If you had been on the jury, how would you have decided? So, this is this really shows the rational side of the person, the captain. Presumably, he he's doing the utilitarian calculation, saying, you know, the lifeboat is made to hold this many people. It's overloaded. When the rough seas come in, it's going to you know capsize, fill with water. We're going to lose everybody, and and this is what we need to do um, to ensure survival of of some of the people. Otherwise, we're going to lose everybody. Uh, but certainly a moral dilemma that falls within a Sophie's choice. Um, and the, you know, it, these situations present themselves frequently in life, you know, for us. Um, the, the, you know, the, the Sophie's, the Sophie's choice. So, um, you know, what would, what would you do if you were, if you were on the jury and, and you heard this? So, um, it's very interesting, you know, the moral dilemma that you can go back and forth with on this. And I'm going to talk somewhat about how this relates to the boat rescue on 9-11-2001. We did not run into a Sophie's Choice scenario. And I believe because the um, the boat rescue was moving at a steady pace, we had um, educated people 
the profile of the people that were being rescued. Largely, they worked in finance, um, had advanced degrees, were 40 years old, things that all contributed to more um, rational or conscious behavior. Now, it's weird because if any of these folks would have really sat down and thought about, you know, we have this, there's hundreds of thousands of us here and, and how in the world is this rescue going to happen and no one's ever trained for this, you know, like this is, this is irrational, but, but just saying, um, you know, this is one of those situations where if, if the lines wouldn't have been moving or let's say that there was fog or a storm that was going to be moving in and people were aware of this, would we have seen a Sophie's choice? Would we have seen a preference made by captains to rescue women and children first off of the island, Manhattan Island, and, and later, you know, rescue males. Um, or how would that have, have happened? I mean, it would have kind of played out a little bit like a Titanic scenario. It could have played out that way, but it didn't. We didn't see a Sophie's Choice um, happen. Uh, something else happened. I'll talk about that in, in a little bit. But Sophie's Choice could have definitely been a part of the 9-11 boat rescue and, and would have added a very rich layer into the research component into that. So we talked about the the overcrowded lifeboat. Let us change to a different scenario. Think about this one for a little bit. The costly underwater tunnel. All right, here is the scenario. An underwater tunnel is being constructed despite an almost certain loss of lives. Now, you know in these big construction projects, there is typically a calculation of loss of life. Like when they built Hoover Dam, the Empire State Building, the Golden Gate Bridge, um, you build those with the assumption that there will be so many fatalities just, you know, because of the complexity, the risks it's taken with, you know, with doing those. Um, so that's kind of factored in. Um, but anyway, let, let's talk about this. So an underwater tunnel is being constructed despite uh, an almost certain loss of several lives. Um, Presumably, the expected loss is a calculated cost that society is prepared to pay for having the tunnel. And society doesn't make any such calculation, okay? So it's this calculated cost that society is prepared to pay for having the tunnel. Um, but again, you know, this is all this is all done behind the scenes. Society is either voting for or against the tunnel. They're not voting... You know, if, for their tax dollars, or if they're voting on the tunnel project or whatever, they're not saying we'll vote for it. And plus, we understand it's likely 15 people will perish or something in the construction of this. So, at a critical moment, when a fitting must be lowered into place, a workman is trapped in a section of the partially laid tunnel. If it is lowered, it will surely crush the trapped workman to death. Yet, if it is not in a time-consuming rescue, the workman is attempted that the tunnel will have to be abandoned and the whole project begun anew. Two workmen have already died in the project as a result of anticipated and unavoidable conditions in the building of the tunnel. What should be done? Was it a mistake to begin the tunnel in the first place? But don't we take such risk all the time? We could get some clarity about this example by asking what the police would do if they are informed that the work foreman has authorized the deliberate crushing of a worker. I suspect that he would immediately be arrested. 
for murder. With these tunnels and bridges, the moral principle involved with the deaths is a simple one. Because of the projects, fewer people will die later. So, for example, in, in car crashes, um, if the tunnels are there to transport, you know, clean water, people aren't going to die of, of cholera or, or cholera, I should say, and, and uh, other waterborne um, illnesses. So in the long run, by building, building the tunnel, you're going to save lives. People fear people are going to die later. This is a compelling, you know, it's a compelling reason for my book, Lessons Lower Manhattan, to help inform people of critical decisions and discretion present at the time of, of chaos. Um, because the fact is, you know, whatever you do in, in the moment and as you do it, you know, for a group, okay, um, you're going to have intended or unintended consequences on that. So, you know, the fact that, you know, overloading the boats, they did overload most of the rescue boats. They, they talked about this, um, to a certain point and then that was it. But, you know, um, what if you get to the point where, you know, there's an additional attack, a plane comes in very close to the harbor, you know, there, there's, you know, people are, are being, you know, burned because of the heat. Uh, do you choose then to overload the boat even more, knowing that you risk a capsize of the boat sinking um, in order to get these people off, or do you not? So, I mean, you can have these type of, of dilemmas that surface. So, um, Hobson's choice, H-O-B-S-O-N apostrophe S choice, Hobson's choice. The meaning of Hobson's choice is that there's no real choice at all, okay? The only option being to either accept or refuse the offer that's given to you. So you give an offer of saying, you can do this, and if you don't, then that's fine. You know, this is your choice. Take it or leave it. Take it or leave it. A choice exists. You can make the choice. You can take it or you can leave it. Okay? But if you leave it, you have you, you have nothing, and there's nothing else there. Um, so it originated with Thomas Hobson in... Uh, who lived from 1545 to 1631, he ran a thriving carrier and horse rental business in uh, Cambridge, England. So it was around the turn of the 17th century. Hobson rented out horses mainly to Cambridge University students, um, but refused to hire them out other than in the order that he chose. The choice his customers were given was this or none. Quite literally, not their choice, but Hobson's choice. So the 9-11 Lower Manhattan Rescue was ultimately a Hobson's choice. Although, um, so you, you didn't have any other avenues of escape from the island. Um, you, you were trapped. There, there was some restoration in the afternoon of, of subway, uh, but only to limited areas. The most viable option to get off of Lower Manhattan um, definitely was via boat. Um, so if you, that was your choice. You could take the boat or you could not because you were not moving up beyond, you know, where the, where the, uh, twin towers were. You're going to stay down in, in lower Manhattan. What you're going to do, I don't know. Um, but amazing. So you have this Hobson's choice. So it wasn't like you could do this. You could do, 
Uh, instead, you could do the subway or you could walk or you could go over the bridges. Remember, the bridges were closed. Um, and Manhattan is an island, so it was, it was pretty isolated. And the attack was also, um, while the attacks on the Twin Towers occurred, you know, and concluded before noon, um, it was in the afternoon that Tower 7 fell, and there was this thought yet that there could be boats with explosives um, in the harbor um, that could be ramming other boats, that there could be explosives on uh, the bridges, uh, that, you know, this this was an event like, you know, none other. So really, um, with Hobson's choice, I mean, your path for rescue was going to be the boat. So either it was a take it or leave it, and people took it. Sometimes when you get into that, when you get into high chaos situations, this whole take it or leave it, it's really good because it eliminates this whole heuristics process of having to analyze this option against this option against this option against this option. Um, when it is either like you get on here or you stay. If you get on here, you're going to get off the island and, and likely to a much safer area. Um, you do that, okay? So that is your Hobson's choice. You see this at airports, too. Okay, I talked to one of the researchers. It's actually Paul Paul Rapp, Dr. Paul Rapp, um, head of military medicine. He was talking kind of about a Hobson's choice scenario, and he said, you know what? He was stranded at an airport and uh, in Europe, and the you know flight that he had was, was canceled. There wasn't another flight to get back to the States. So his choice was we can fly you to London, um, which isn't where you, you want to go, but we can fly you to London. And then once you're in London, you can see what options you have there or you can stay here and, you know, eventually wait to see if other options develop, um, you know, at the airport, but we can fly you to London. It's not your destination. Um, so what he did is he flew to London. You know, he said, well, Hey, I got to go to London. And then from there, I have a different set of options available to me. So I don't necessarily probably have an ho- a Hobson's choice. I have different choices available to me and maybe I can fly to different, you know, destinations to get back then and connect up and get to the United States, which he did. So, um, dun, 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 dun. all right. I'm going to talk about a research article, um, called, uh, or it was in the journal of contingencies and crisis management in 2014. The article is titled Cognitive Correlates of Improvised Behavior in Disaster Response, the Cases of the Murrah Building, that was Oklahoma City, and the World Trade Center. It's by uh, David Madonka, Gary Webb, Carter Butts, and James Brooke, all university faculty in the United States, all recognized as disaster safety experts. Uh, their work, folks, is impeccable. Uh, this is a very comprehensive, very detailed study that they assembled. Um, so what I'm going to do is point out some parts of this study. Um, I wouldn't say necessarily that I don't uh, agree with. I think there's a, a alternate way to analyze um what they're analyzing, you know, these, these rescues and focusing on the responders. There's a different, there's a different way to do that. There's probably many different ways. And I, in my book, I go about a completely different strategy of doing that than what they do. Um, so I'm not trying to say that what they did was, was, was wrong. 
Um, you know, these are very highly regarded safety experts, but I think that the, the window is open to, um, you know, look out and, and think of some different ways to understand how, uh, safety response, you know, has occurred in, in the past and actually like why it has occurred in, in, and then the way that it unfolded, but then to look to the future. Because safety response is going to be completely different for the next generation and the generation after that. The human element in safety response will be continually diminished as AI robotics algorithms come in. We already know for a fact, um, you know, drones are out there. We have search drones, um, which can go out. And just in the last year or two, if somebody, a missing person, um, the strategies for, uh, you know, searchers and, you know, uh, search uh, dogs um, and their handlers and two-way communications and how all of that would set up and, you know, the dogs would fatigue after a certain time. and um, But yet, you know, now we can bring in drones to augment that process and drones with heat sensors, drones that can map coordinates, um you know, GPS coordinates down, you know, to the foot and, and have resulted in successful, you know, um, location of individuals. Um, of course, you know, there are limitations to that, you know, in densely wooded areas and things like that. But, um, but we are going to, I believe, see a continued expansion of AI and interrobotics and algorithms and technology to augment, um, rescue processes. So let me, let me read the abstract from this, this study. So it says, while emergency response actions are known to range from conventional to improvised, less is known about the thinking processes that underlie these actions. This paper presents a statistical analysis of cognition and behavior reported by police personnel who responded to two significant U.S. disasters the 1995 bombing of the Murrah Building in Oklahoma City, and the 2001 attack on the World Trade Center in New York City. The results suggest the prominence of conventional behavior coupled with cognitive processes closely tied to recognition and of improvised behaviors that are linked to more explicit reasoning processes. Don't worry, folks. I'm going to, I'm going to break this down a little bit. The results underscore the value of exploring cognitive foundations of both conventional and improvised behaviors to enrich understanding of human response to disaster. Something that was mentioned a few times right away in the abstract was the value of improvised response, meaning that you are taking into consideration the unique context and situation which is changing, plus the people around you, their skill set, the tools around you, and making the most of that um, to construct a response to the situation. Just in that abstract, that is not at all how we respond to, um, for example, active shooter um, situations in schools. We follow very, very rote processes, you know, run, hide, fight, um, and when we get locked in to rote responses that eliminate um, an improvised uh, component and the ability to use discretion um, 
it's 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 not good, folks, because we then have a linear response to something that's very chaotic. Okay, so you want to be able to be um, able to identify what's happening in that chaos, and then what opportunities are there for your safety versus like I've been trained to do this, I'm going to do this no matter what. Um, and it's like, oh, there might be other options that are present to you with better options. You know, you might want to go with those. So interesting article. Now it's a, it's a, I don't know if I first, my first thought on this was looking at this and saying, I, I don't think I would compare the Murrah building and the world trade center. Um, and I'll, I'll get into that in a little bit. I, I, I don't think I would make that comparison. Um, but let's talk about improvisation. So improvisation in emergency response has long been viewed as an activity in which creativity is exercised under time constraint in order to meet response objectives. That's from uh, Klein and White. David Klein, um, researcher I've mentioned, uh, did a lot of work with the military. Uh, Carl Weick, um, an icon in sense-making. Um, so yet only a few studies have sought to discover and explore the cognitive and behavioral processes that underlie improvisation, thus leaving the improvisation construct unpacked. So improvisation. So, but this isn't what we teach. Folks, this isn't what we teach. We don't teach people to improv in the moment. Um, we teach people to follow a protocol. We teach pilots to follow a protocol. Sully, okay, you know, the miracle on the Hudson to follow a protocol. And yet right away in this research paper, in this article in the Journal of Contingencies and Crisis Management, four of the top disaster safety experts in the United States and arguably in the world come out right away and say improvisation is understudied. It's a huge component to emergency response. Um, and yet, in reality, we don't do this. We we do not foster improvisation. We try to make everything linear and, and not improv. We try to get it to standard operating procedure. So it's an interesting way to start an article. I agree with what they're saying, but this isn't the way things are done. Okay? Um, so, yeah, you know, I agree. We don't teach improvisation, and we have to teach improvisation. You know, it's like you, you have a fire you go out in the hallway and suddenly, you know, the hallway is blocked off um, and, and you can't get down that highway, that hallway because there, there's there's smoke and fire. So what do you do next? Yeah, this is the drill. Every time there's a fire drill, you go down this hallway and go out. So what do you do next? And if, if the hallway is starting to, you know, fill up with smoke, that ability to, to have those improvisational uh, safety skills. So... Um, I already talked, you know, about the run, hide, fight, fracture, shooter instance and how that is just getting so ingrained when I think, you know, that closes that, that opportunity for sense making of context and situation. And I've always said, think, act, fight. Once you think, okay, you're pausing, you're thinking, you're assessing your context and situation, and then you're acting. Run, hide, fight means no matter what happens, you're running, okay? And that may not be your best option. So it takes away that thinking component. Um, so I guess my, I don't know, I'm going to say my issues with the article. <laughs> and I hate to, to, to frame it that way because I respect these people. I respect the work that they've done. Um, 
But, you know, frankly, you know, the work that I'm doing, the experts that I'm working with, we, we have a different stance on how we approach this. And I think both of these stances um, offer valuable insight. And I, I think together they make for a stronger knowledge base and a stronger way to look at response um, and, and preparedness. But let, let me tell you, first of all, again, I said the Murrah building in Oklahoma City, okay, that was a single event in one location. Manhattan Island was an island, okay, population-dense island, many, many more people than Oklahoma City. So you're comparing these these two. Oklahoma City is is a single event. Um, the World Trade Center attack was part of coordinated attacks in a, ma- a massive population-dense area. So when the Murrah building was being attacked, there was not this thought. And I remember when the Murrah building was, was attacked. I know where I was um, hearing the news. But there wasn't a thought that there would be coordinated ongoing attacks or that this was, you know, potentially going to spill over into other cities. As horrible as it was, it was an attack that then had a definite start and an end point to it. Whereas the World Trade Center attacks, arguably, um, and I, I make this argument, I said that the attack, um, the chaos situation where people thought they were under attack was literally about 12 hours long. If you look at when the uh, there were five warships deported from Norfolk, not knowing if the harbor was mined, um, not knowing if there was going to be some other you know detonation device that had been planted. Um, again, you had multiple sites that were struck. This was nothing like the Murrah building. Okay, I think it was actually more you know like you know, maybe a hurricane, although a hurricane you have forewarning on. I can see where both of these, you'd pick the Murrah Building WTC because they were, um, you know, unanticipated. But, uh, but, I, but I, I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think it's an equitable comparison. I don't know what I would compare it to. I, I guess I have to sit in and, and, and think more about that. I just, I just don't see this again. And with Murrah, you didn't have to worry about an evacuation of people. You had exits out of that. Where again, Manhattan Island is an island, a population dense island. Um, so the, the other part too is the national impact of the world trade attacks. The world trade attacks actually involved a move to DEFCON level three at 1053 Eastern time by the U.S. Strategic Command or STRATCAM or STRATCOM, S-T-R-A-T-C-O-M. So moving to DEFCON 3 is huge, okay? Probably saw this in the movie War Games with Matthew Broderick, but once you start progressing through DEFCONs, um, when you get to, to DEFCON 1, that's like, you know, that that's war. So that's when you're launching your ICBMs. If you move from DEFCON 3 to DEFCON 2, you are equipping your, um, you know, your, your long-range destroyers with uh, nuclear missiles at that point. So you're one step away and so, you know, you have this, this situation where this is a national, international event. And there was very, um, sketchy communication between Russia and the U.S. during this. Very hard to get a hold of President Bush when he was on the, the plane. Um, people in different bunkers, the chain of command. There's been many revisions since 2001 to, uh, make that more streamlined. Um, but you had an entire world that was on edge because, I mean, if you go down to DEFCON 2, if there's another attack, 
if there was something that had been planted that suddenly, you know, it explodes or a low-level, you know, nuclear explosion or something like that, um, you go down to DEFCON 2, um, a prudent military force um, of, of, you know, Russia, you know, China, whatever, is, is going to change their DEFCON level and start to prepare, you know, because they don't know if either if they're going to be attacked or if there is if there is some um, you know first strike initiation that's going to be happening out of the the United States. It wouldn't be logical, but again, um, you know we've seen the movie War Games and things, and and there have been you know numerous times in history with um, the Soviet Union and with the United States where we have come very close to um, activating um, an exchange of ICBMs. So. Again, we compare this. I think the rescuers, the mirror building, plus what they would have gotten through text messages. You didn't have smartphones back then. Smartphones really not too much in 2001, although you would have had, you know, more, um, you know, the internet was more developed. So you would have had access, you know, if you had access to a computer on what was happening. Um, but I, I, I don't think it's fair to compare right away these two events because I think the rescuers at the mirror building would not have felt that there was going to be a subsequent attack or that this was part of this national or international event that could rapidly escalate. And I think that was there with the World Trade Center, um, definitely, and the responders. And anything anything could go, you know, with that. You know, one more attack, what else was waiting? And if you're a responder, boy, that, that puts a lot of, of pressure on you. So we have the Murrah building, which was an event that concluded, a disaster event, and then it became a rescue. And I'm saying the World Trade Center, the rescuers came in while that event was still ongoing. And I'm saying it was going for 12 hours. We didn't have the collapse of World Trade Center 7 until, I believe, what, about 5 p.m. in the afternoon after the initial tax um, shortly before 9. So, um, so I think right there are two stark differences. Um, so... Um, dun, 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 dun. Well, we also, we discount the advances in technology, and I mentioned it right here, that at the Murrah building, you would have maybe been able to get messages by, by text, you know, off your phone in 95, but you didn't have a smartphone, and even the Internet was still in, in kind of its infancy, you know, a lot of dial-up and things like that. By 2001, you had advanced more past that. Um so you would have had more technology, more information coming out to you in 2001 than in 1995. And today, imagine the technology that that would come out to you. Um, so I, I think right there was a difference. And where this research article, instead of looking to the past and comparing the two, I think there's, like I said, big differences between the two contexts and scenarios and the two events. Um, I think you can also look to the future, like at the Fukushima nuclear disaster, um, there was a person that worked for Google, who I hope to have on the show, uh, talked about how the communication system went down and then used his Google phone to hook into uh, satellite and Google Maps to find his way back home. But on this way home is also being, you know, it, it, and it's very hard to find, you know, through through Japan, the, word, the roads aren't laid out in grids like they are in the U.S., but he's being told by people that he's passing on his way in. You know, they're, they're getting ready to evacuate the major cities and, you know, there's a radiation cloud coming in. He's trying to get back to his, his family. Um, so this whole thing of misinformation 
we know too, I think in the future isn't going to be um, as prevalent um, in rescue events. I think information is, is going to be much more timely, much more accurate. So, um, okay. So first, time pressure, high consequences, and complexity are expected to push response personnel towards decision-making. When this scene is more familiar, a, recon a recognition-prime decision-making model is expected to operate. So that, that's from the article. So again, first, time pressure. So you want to respond as fast as you can, save as many lives as you can. High consequences, like, you know, you're entering, for example, the Twin Towers. Can things still collapse? Um, Got to get to people as soon as you can. They might be bleeding out, whatever. And complexity are expected to push response personnel towards decision making. So yeah, you have to make decisions. You have to use discretion and you have to make decisions. Maybe Sophie's choice decisions. Um, there, there was a major industrial explosion, um, about 30 miles from where I live, uh, a month ago. And, um, you know, there, there, uh, you know, one of the, there were five people killed. One, uh, person had both of his legs amputated. A train car had, had fallen on his legs and crushed them. So a surgeon had to come on the scene. And at that point, you know, make, make a decision of, you know, basically at that point, what would it be? It, it, you know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't a Sophie's choice. It wasn't, you know, that you, we can, um, not amputate and you're going to have damaged and crushed legs, um, that are going to be non, non functional, but you'll have legs. Or we can amputate. No, it was a Hobson's choice of um, we we need to amputate your legs to save your life because you know you're bleeding out your arteries and um, uh, we 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 have to do this and and that was it. There there was no other choice. Um, so um, so when this scene is more familiar, a recognition prime decision making model is expected to operate. Yes. Yeah, true. I mean, there's certain things after you respond to so many fires, um, ambulance calls and things like that. There are things that you recognize as a pattern that wasn't present at 9-11. That was so far outside of the realm of what anyone have, had ever experienced. So imagine the Twin Towers collapsing. So recognition primed. I mean, some people were saying they didn't even know where they were because of the, you know, the, the dust and, and the, the sheer, you know, damage that had been done. So you're trying, it, that recognition prime decision-making model. Yeah, I think you try to get there, but at the same time, I think you look and you're like, I'm outside of my Taurus. We talked about this, our everyday thing. Even if you're a rescuer, like this is so far out there um, that what is the new reality of what is happening? Like I don't understand this landscape. I've never trained for any of this. Um, and I think once you, you stop trying to fit this into something you've trained for and say this is a, whole new ball game um so let's let's operate under under the new the uh, you know the new rules that we have here the new context the new situation that we've never practiced we've never seen before then you enter this new taurus which brings some stability out of chaos and you can create some systems in this taurus that you're never going to return to but you know I th again I, I think this this miss this article missed out. So this is partially true for 9/11. You know, the missing term here is is discretion. Okay, push people toward decision making. No, you push people toward discretion. Okay, um, and using their bias, their previous knowledge, 
Um, also, much clearer perception at the Murrah building that attack was a single event. We talked about that, and there would not be future attacks. So um, I think at the Murrah building, you could pattern, you could reckon, you know, recognition, prime decision making of what had really happened. Or I mean, it, it could be similar to maybe if there was a major explosion because of a gas leak in a building or something like that. Like you, you could, you could have some sense making of understanding what you're dealing with. At 9-11, that, that, that wasn't there. You had to move completely outside into a brand new Taurus. Um, so, and again, um, you know, those heightened risk, you had the ongoing event. So some conclusions. Okay. One implication of this study for the practice of emergency management is the relatively untapped potential of structured analysis of after-action narratives for informing process-level explanations of how organizations deal with disaster. The after-action narratives. Okay, folks, right there. That's interviewing the people who were involved in this as responders, okay, and gathering whatever data you can get from interviews or, you know, the narratives, what they've written down for notes, what they might have communicated that you're transcribing that, trying to understand those narratives. The after-action narratives analyzed here suggest the potential of a structured approach to understanding large-scale response to disaster. I, I guess, I mean, if you want to do a massive transcription, you know, interview a lot of people, interview, you know, take radio communications, take all of that down, and then do a thorough qualitative analysis of that, um, code it out, come up with your constructs and themes. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, to me though, that seems like pretty obvious that you could come up with that. And again, these are moments in time, 10, 15 years from now, it's not going to be like this with the way that artificial intelligence is going to come into play. Um, and you know, we talk about large scale responses. Um, you know, back in the fifties, it was Bert the Turtle. You know, you'd have it on TV, Bert the Turtle. And if you're the air raid siren, you know, you duck and cover. I mean, come on. So there are, you know, operational, um, responses, you know, in, in contingency plans with the government. What if there was a nuclear detonation in a major city? How would you respond to that? But it's nothing you practice. I mean, um, I live outside of, you know, Madison, Wisconsin, you know, which would be an ICBM target. So, um, and we don't have drills on, on how to practice for that. So I, I kind of, you know, I, I get what they're saying here. Um, but at the same time, you, you can't take one disaster and compare it to another disaster. And some things missing on this too are like, you know, what, how did staging work for both of these? Um, you know, staging of resources and then deciding how you're going to conduct your, your search and, and rescue and also your debriefing of, of people in your critical, um, cumulative stress disorder management with, with people. Um, the fact is, um, you are going to have quadrants, you know, create, let's say a tornado strikes and, and wipes out a large, um, city. Um, you know, you're going to have quadrants that you can develop and you can go in and from up above identify these quadrants and pinpoint exactly where they are with drones, start to do visual surveillance of these quadrants, things you couldn't do 10 years ago unless, you know, you had a helicopter and stuff, but, I mean, you can actually get in with heat sensors and, and you know, drones and things like that. So it's, it's going to be much different. Um, 
as we look to the future, which I think we need to do. I don't think we need to look to the past of saying, let's compare 9-11 to the Murrah building. I don't know. I, I just don't get that, that much out of that. Um, when me- methods are compiling and analyzing after-action reports are ad hoc, it is difficult to compare results within or across organizations over time or across events. It's difficult. It's also going to be impossible. You'll never be able to do it. You can't do it in schools. Like if you, you can't compare, you have a district, you have 10 schools, you can't take elementary, any, 10 elementaries can't take elementary A compared to B compared to C because the neighborhood is different. The teachers are different that, you know, turnover level, um, the, the bias of the teacher or the principal, the discretion where the priorities lie for, um, different trainings and things like that. Who does drills, how they document. So it's all going to be different. You can look at the unit, which is the school. So I think, Again, it, it's pointed out in the article, it's difficult to compare results within or across organizations over time or events. True. And the fact is, though, you're missing out on, on mentioning the advances in technology and the rapid um, sharing of information now and, and fluidifying information and the fact that people are going to um, – when I interviewed um, – you know, the, the folks with ISS 24-7 work on security with the NFL. They were saying, you know, even, even with the most severe hurricanes coming through now, you still can largely text. You still have that available to you. Um, so you can go in and you can text, um, even, even if everything else is down. And I think those systems will just get to be more effective. So I think you're going to get information to people and GPS locating and, um, I, you know, I mentioned this too. Um, when I was at, at Disney back in March, you know, we had the wristbands where they could, the, the park folks identified who you were the moment you came in. Uh, they could GPS locate you. They knew who, you know, it, it was also your pass into your room. You didn't have to carry a wallet. You could use it for things like that. But, um, and we see those built into phones and stuff like this. I, I, I just think we're discounting technology when we do reports like this. And this is 2014. Um, so. Um, I'm saying you need to look at technology, information awareness, and AI, um, and, and disaster as its own unit. So I guess in, in closing with today's podcast, um, you know, we covered a couple, you know, a couple different areas, but I, I recently purchased this book. So if you're watching, um, it's American Dunkirk is by, um, uh, it is is by uh, James Kendra and Tricia uh, Walkendorf, who also did a paper before this came out on um, the rescue, the boat rescue of Lord Manhattan. Excellent paper. Um, they centered their work on um, distributed sense making, um, which I definitely think was present. And my, my work, um, incorporates that, you know, that I, I, I don't disagree that that was there, but I also believe that, um, transference was a, a huge part of that rescue. And I get very deep into why I believe that and I'm going to be working, uh, with some additional experts and actually some from the field experts, um, in, in identifying why I believe that that was the positioning. So my book, Lessons of Lower Manhattan, is going to have a different take on why that rescue was as effective as it was. And one of the things, too, flat out with that rescue of Lower Manhattan, yes, of how effective, um, and we definitely know the skill level of the 
of the tugboat captains and captains in general involved. But it was a clear day. It was almost a perfect weather day, which is not the, the, always the case in lower Manhattan. So you had 10 miles of visibility, temperatures about 80 degrees, calm seas, it didn't get dark until after 7 o'clock at night. So these attacks happen in the morning, you can use daylight. Um, so you had a lot of things going for you just because the weather was good. Imagine it's a little bit foggy that after the attack happens at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, which means the rescue is happening uh, when it's dark. Um, is it the same rescue at all? Absolutely not. We know that the dark innately changes people and their reactions. The panic sets in in the dark. Um, so I, I think there's some things, too, that that I bring to the table in my work, which are, are going to be different than what some of the other people have brought. Um, but certainly, it's very well done. I appreciate the book. I just have a different perspective and, and the people that I'm working with and bringing that forward in my book, Lessons of Lord Manhattan. And I think if you read the two books in conjunc- conjunction, um, it, they, they will definitely complement each other. So with that said, um, this is the new uh, boom arm, studio arm, boom arm. Um, and very appreciative um, to have this technology in place. Um, I... I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for the listeners. Uh, the support for the show continues to be strong. I do have, again, guests coming on. Um, you know, we're booking out. I'm going to be a guest on a few shows, the uh, uh, Wait What If um, podcast. Uh, that should be within. We recorded that. That's being added. It should be maybe in the next week or two. And I will be a guest on the Sustainable Living podcast with Marianne West. Um, conducting that interview um, next week. So I have those um, coming up, and, and we'll definitely link those out. You can follow me on Twitter at SafetyPhD, at SafetyPhD. Just go on Twitter or go to SafetyPhD.com. That's the web page. You can learn more about me, read some of the blog posts. Um, I am having a refresh of the safety doc design and also the web page will be rebuilt under a WordPress uh, template. So it is going to look different to focus more on the podcast, which do come out weekly. This is podcast number 36, 36 weeks in a row. Um, so we're going to put more emphasis on the podcast. And, you know, we're going to update the, the logo um, a little bit to um, just a hint. It, it's not I'm going to keep actually that design in the background um, just for that that sign, which will be redone, um, just to, to be a little vintage here. But um, it's not going to have my face on it, um, going a little different color scheme on that. Um, so anyway, thank you very much, and continue to think analytically. Um, be safe everybody be safe thank you very much